This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is we're wondering what the hell is wrong with Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a constant theme in this podcast recently. Yeah, so I can already hear younger listeners saying, okay, boomer, but actually I'm not a boomer. I'm Gen X. And we've got some real problems with this generation. We're, we're educating a generation of young people who are you know, just getting out of high school, getting in college or just about to get out of college, starting to enter the workforce. And they are just woefully unprepared for life. They are woefully not committed to the principles of free speech and other things that make us Americans. They are ignorant of history. We just saw a poll that shocking numbers of young Americans believe that Jews are an oppressor class, that the Holocaust was exaggerated, that uh, Israel should be taken away and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. I mean, this this whole, you know, events in the Middle East has really unearthed a lot of bad things that are going on about this generation. And what are the roots of it? How are they so misguided? It's because they've been indoctrinated. One, we haven't, we, our schools have not been educating young people uh, properly in basics. You know, we, we focus a lot on the reading and writing, which are just horrible because and math, because those numbers are just terrible for grade school students. But the history and the civics, the, the knowledge of, of the basics of our of our background and our history have left them open to these radical ideologies to these pur purveyors. They get to college and these purveyors are radical ideologies, Marxism, critical race theory and all the rest of it that leave them vulnerable to, to the purveyors of these radical ideologies that don't that think America is the source of evil in the world that we're an oppressor nation and that there are oppressed peoples around the world that we are keeping down in our boot and that anything goes when it comes to uh, fighting the oppressors. You can trample on their free speech rights. You can cancel them. You can destroy them. And we don't, and they don't have a right to free speech, but the people who are oppressed can do whatever they want. And so Hamas can go in and kill the Jews because they're oppressors and uh, the Jews, because they're an oppressor, don't have any right to defend themselves. And it's just a mess because these people are coming out with this warped view of the world and they're they're joining the workforce and they're going to be lead, raising families and leading this country. It's, it's very frightening. So we're what we're actually talking about today is sort of these aspects of cancel culture. Right. And yeah. this, this is and this is it. And what you're describing is this Manichaean simplification of the world into black and white. And when I say black and white, I, of course, don't mean racially, although also racially. But it is this sense that there is a new set of commandments, right? Thou shall not transgress. And they don't relate to anything you'll find in the Bible. They don't relate to anything that you'll find in common sense. But they've become hugely important. And I want to I want to say a word on behalf of Gen Z for a second. And I'm nowhere near Gen Z. But they're not Gen Z is not teaching this, right? Gen X is teaching this. Gen X is Claudine Gay. Gen X are those disgraceful yes. uh, university professors. And what we, I think, have to realize 
is that these ideas that are now coming to the forefront, whether it's anti-Semitism or it's anti-free speech or it's white oppressors or it's the fundamental truthfulness of somebody who is not straight, for example, all of those things have been an incubation for much longer than I think we're willing to admit. I agree with that 100%, but also it's a perversion of this of reality in the world, which is there are oppressors and oppressed. The Chinese Communist Party is an oppressor. The Uyghurs are oppressed. The Putinists in, in Russia are oppressors. The, the Ukrainians are oppressed. Uh, there, there are oppressors and oppressed. And when you take these ideas that are real and exist in the world and apply it in situations where it doesn't fit at all, Claudine Gay, who it's is oppressed. the child- the, is, is the child of wealthy Haitian immigrants who went to uh, one of the most elite prep schools in the country. And suddenly, because she uh, she plagiarized, she gets thrown out. Well, she's an oppressed person who is being targeted because of her race. It's, it's this it's this bastardization of real concepts and realities that exist in the world and then using those to cancel people using those that that overarching ideology as a justification to say you can speak you can't this speech is allowed this speech is not you are allowed to defend yourself you are not allowed to defend yourself and it's and it becomes it becomes the irony is is that people who consider themselves oppressed become oppressors well and you know again we've we've talked about this we've repeated this and our listeners know this all too well but there is a new self-appointed elite in our country at, you know, at Ivy League schools, at the nation's premier newspapers, at the most important social media companies that enforce this doctrine like Stalin, right? So, you know, it is not simply that these ideas are out there and, you know, we don't like them and we object to them. It is that there is ruthless enforcement. And of course, you know, in the old Soviet Union, you would, you know, you'd go to to prison or you'd be, you know, shot and then uh, and then airbrushed out of a photograph with Stalin with your arm weirdly hanging over him. Uh, But but now it's not much different. You are essentially being airbrushed out of society. And I think that the problem for the country is that so many people are being airbrushed out of society. This, it, it, let's talk about something completely that we didn't talk about in this podcast, but this notion that everybody's okay with what's happening at the border. If you lived in D.C. or San Francisco, you would actually believe that Americans are totally fine with what's happening at our southern border. And then you... Then Until you, Greg Abbott started bringing them to your doorstep. <laughs> and, but, but, and then the New York Times suddenly realizes, oh my God, this is a problem. And then it's a legitimate problem. So, you know, it's Comrade Stalin has told us, no, 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 you were not allowed to talk about harvest problems in the 1930s. But now in the 1940s, since we have good harvests, you can talk about it again. There is, while there is a difference, obviously, in the consequences for people, there is no difference in the mentality behind this. So what it is essentially is Marxism. Right. Which is... Which is, and you know, you're right to call it Stalinism, because what if you think about the difference between fascism and communism, is that fascism was basically just open about what it was doing, right? You know, we're we're the master race, and we're going to crush the uh, the the lesser the lesser races, and and to, and, and build a build a master race, right? And, and build a, five, a thousand year. I don't, race. I don't, I don't think this is an endorsement of fascism on Marx's part. No, and what the what the communists did 
was they did the exact same thing as the fascists did, as the Nazis did, except they did it in the name of the oppressed. They did it. It it was the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was the the lumpen proletariat rising up to take on the kulaks and the bourgeoisie and overthrow them because they were the oppressors. And then they they have the dictatorship of the proletariat. So the oppressed build their own dictatorship. And this is the exact ideology you have happening here, because what's happened is when, you know, when you and I were in college, uh, there was political correctness. And basically what that was is there was a huge liberal bias in, in, in the universities. They were teaching certain things, but they weren't teaching other things. And we would stand up and say, let's teach the great books. Remember that fight? You know, let's 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 uh, and they say, oh, no, you can't teach the great books. They're, you know, white, white, uh, old white men. We have to diversify and all the rest. And, and so we had this fight over uh, over political bias. Now it's not liberal bias, it's illiberal bias. It's the idea that not only are our ideas, is our bias going to be centered in the university, but any effort to diversify the ideas has to be crushed because those ideas are violence. Those ideas are a threat. Those ideas are helping the oppressors oppress the oppressed. And so therefore, it's, it becomes illiberal. And that's what we're seeing, the metastasis from liberal bias to illiberal bias in these universities and institutions. And they are now churning out people who have been indoctrinated in this and putting them out into the world. And it's like, you know, it's it's like a, a, a horde of barbarians that are being unleashed on our society. OK, so we need to get to our <laughs> uh, with uh, with our right. You, our usual rant about these things. But I want to I want to actually interject something good. Um, most, okay. of, most everybody knows that my youngest daughter is at Vanderbilt um, University and that I'm actually a big uh, admirer of the president of the university, Daniel Deermeyer. So here I'm going to read an excerpt that uh, Nikki, my youngest, sent uh, sent to me from a letter Two students from Deermeyer. Uh, first, he, he writes, let there be no question that Vanderbilt unequivocally considers calls for violence or genocide against any member of the Vanderbilt community to be evil, repugnant, and violative of university policy. As I stated in, to my, in my message to you in the fall, the university strongly condemns anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, and other forms of hate. Second, he adds, in response to the war in Gaza, there have been calls on campuses across the country for institutions of higher education to join the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, BDS. Unless required by law, Vanderbilt will not boycott or divest from companies for doing business in or with any specific nations, including Israel. Now, that's what I call a good guy. And maybe it takes a German right? Who understands this, right? Because he knows history uh, to, to state in clear moral terms, I am not bending to your stupid whims. I was very impressed with that. And I, it made me feel so much better about <laughs> the $42,000 bill I paid for this semester. <laughs> Shorter Danny Pletka, go to Vanderbilt, not Harvard. Exactly. Really, you'll, you'll get a better education. Okay, now our guests. Uh, we are lucky enough to have two wonderful guests to, 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 to begin to rant with us about the things that we were ranting about before. Greg Lukianoff is a name that's probably familiar to most of you. He's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, FIRE. He's 
really uh, a a loudmouth on the question of uh, free speech. He's written extensively for the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. He's done a bunch of documentaries, and he's the author with Jonathan Haidt of The Coddling of the American Mind. He has a new book out with Ricky Schlott, who's a New York City-based journalist and political commentator and a research fellow at, at FIRE called The Canceling of the American Mind, How Cancel Culture Undermines Trust, Destroys Institutions, and Threatens Us All. And then they have this little, uh, it's not an asterisk, it's still in the title, but it says, but there is a solution. So let's hear it. Here's our interview. Well, Ricky, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. We're so glad to have you here. So, so Greg, you wrote a book, Coddling of the American Mind, and now you and Ricky have written a book called The Canceling of the American Mind. Tell us about the book and what is The Canceling of the American Mind? Well, um, coddling uh, deals with uh, the changes we started to see on campus in really dramatic fashion around 2014. And coddling is mostly about you know, our uh, theory going back to 2014, uh, that essentially the same things that were going to be threats to academic freedom and free speech on campus were also going to be disastrous uh, for mental health of young people. Uh, And turns out we did, there has been a a disaster for mental health of young people. Council of the American Mind goes to another part of the story, which is around 2014, we saw a very noticeable, measurable uptick in the number of people losing their jobs um, for speech that otherwise would be protected by the First Amendment. And by otherwise protected, we mean even outside of a First Amendment context, if you apply First Amendment principles, kind of as an analogy to public employee law, people are getting fired just for you know cracking joke off the clock, which is not normal in American history. Um, and it, there, it, it, there was an uptick of professors getting in trouble around 2014 that wasn't too bad, But 2017 and after, it really accelerates. And I'd say since 2017, we can't find an era in American history outside of the 1930s. And by the way, there was no concept of academic freedom really in the 1930s that had any legal force whatsoever um, of this number of professors uh, losing their jobs. So this is an absolutely fascinating piece of work. Thank you. Thank you both for it, because I think it's unbelievably important you lay out the different eras and the different periods of time, but I think uh, the place that most people want to start before we dive into the more granular questions is why, right? This is unprecedented. You describe it as unprecedented in history, and and the the words that you use to describe it, one might say, are are actually uh, make you think that this is un-American. Right. This is this is this is, in fact, the end of the First Amendment as we know it. It's been redefined. So how do we get here? Part of it is the fact that social media just allows for these pylons in a completely unprecedented way. And also all of us have such an extensive digital footprint in in the way that a pointy to the editor in chief of Teen Vogue could have something that she tweeted when she was 16 resurfaced that she's already apologized for just as a specific example but it's the combination, I think, of uh, a long and gradual um, just kind of shift away from free speech principles and a free speech culture that then had social media introduced on top of that. So these pylons and, and just digital mobs could form around people. And then on top of that, then, is a generation that's grown up only knowing a post-free speech uh, social media-filled world where we've we've lost sight of those values, where it's much more 
simple and effective to take down your um, ideological opponents by attacking them ad hominem or doing a fence archaeology and finding something terrible that they'd said in the past or perhaps not even terrible, depending on your own point of view. Um, and so I think it's 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 a combination of all those things, but certainly um, Gen Z has been at the, the helm of it and bringing it to college campuses and then to corporations soon after they graduate. So um, it's, I think, a, a, a whole host of things coming together in a really unfortunate way. Yeah, and, and it's worth emphasizing um, one of the reasons why I was there are many reasons why I was eager to write with uh, Ricky. She's brilliant, but also she's Gen Z herself. So she grew up with this stuff and th- th- really got to let this sink in. She grew up with cancel culture because cancel culture in a lot of ways was a technology perfected in junior high school. It then started hitting um, uh, colleges and administrators who already weren't great on free speech, you know, formed an alliance with students and uh, everything's gone to gone badly since then. Um, but people really need to understand we're kind of as an entire country or arguing like junior high schoolers right now. As I was looking at your research, I was, it brought to mind uh, James Bennett just had a huge takedown of the New York times in the economist where he writes now. And the, the line that jumped out at me was, cause I grew up in, I went to college in the, in the late eighties when the, the era of political correctness. Right. And what's happening now is very different from that. And the line that jumped out at me was he said, the Times' problem has metastasized from liberal bias to illiberal bias, from an inclination to favor one side of the national debate to an impulse to shut down debate altogether. I mean, is that because the Times is filled with journalists who have graduated in this generation from colleges and universities that have not taught them to value uh, speech and to value the other side and the right of the other side to say it, to ha- say its piece? You know, the idea that a, that a New York Times editor could be taken down for publishing an op-ed by a United States senator by a newsroom rebellion. Where did these kids learn this? It certainly is not just that they weren't taught to value difference of opinion and, and free expression on college campuses, but they were actively taught that they get social points and credit if they tear people down or at the forefront of an activist campaign. And I think you know, it's worth noting that at a place like the New York Times, a large proportion, um, if not majority of the people who end up becoming new hires are from Ivy League schools or, or schools in the very cream of the crop top echelon. And you know, one thing that we do talk about in the book in terms of reforms is opening the door to these institutions and knowledge producing institutions to kids who have different paths or who come from different parts of the country who may be equally promising, but who were not given a crash course in cancel culture for four years of college. And, you know, to, to Greg's credit, he changed at fire his um, his hiring criteria to hire me when I was a fellow there. Um, because I didn't finish NYU, I don't have a degree because I dropped out because I found it to be a stifling environment. And more and more uh, major institutions are, are doing the same. We have IBM, Tesla, Google, and tons of companies pulling back on degree requirements where appropriate and possible, because I think that there's just such a conformity pressure on these campuses that a lot of heterodox young people or young people who just um, are not happy to go with the flow of, of a liberalism on campuses are pulling away and doing their own thing. And so I think that is potentially one fix is diversity of educational background as well in the hiring process. Yeah. And, and, the, and the piece is, is a long piece, but I do, I do really recommend it. And, and we have a whole chapter on Counseling the American Mind on what happened to journalism. And to me, a lot of First Amendment people come from a journalism background. I was a student journalist. That's one of the things that got me radicalized toward Ricky is a working journalist. Um, And we we thought this was something that really put 
free speech into your blood. But so a lot of us, since we defend a lot of student newspapers at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, where, where, where I work, we started talking to younger journalists. And there was this idea where the goal of journalism was activism. It was saving the world, not describing it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Describing the world is plenty hard. And if you believe that you're coming in to save the world, that's going to actually lead you to pick and choose what you report, to shade what you report. That that That's an arrogant position to take on. But a lot of, I feel like a lot of these fancy journalism schools are basically teaching this. How much of this is related to this this mind virus that has infected some of these schools of the of breaking the world down to oppressors and oppressed that if you're if you're the oppressed you can do no wrong if you're the oppressor you can do no right so this and we see this with this explosion of anti-semitism on the college campuses where you know the jews are the oppressors so therefore the hamas can do whatever they want to them and they have no right to defend themselves and because hamas represents the oppressed they can do whatever they want and the jews can do nothing to defend themselves this this translates into the political bias we're seeing and the and the illiberal culture where you know you can say things but if you're an oppressor you can't you don't you, your free speech rights can be can be revoked but if you're the oppressed you can revoke the speech free speech rights of others who you disagree with is that is is all this connected into one one whole I think so. And it's one of the reasons why Haidt and I actually published the uh, adapted version of Chapter 3 of Coddling the American Mind on Haidt's Substack recently, because we wanted to explain that when you get into intersectionality... So intersectionality is is this idea from Kimberly Crenshaw that essentially um, our our, our identities intersect. And the most basic observation was uh, during, I think, a GM strike uh, or a lawsuit back in the 70s that a company was saying it didn't have a racist environment because it had lots of black male employees, but not not any black female employees. And she made the point that unless you actually start combining identities, you're not actually seeing the whole picture because the the, the problems faced by people with, with multiple intersecting identities are actually different. It's a fine point. But it's become kind of almost like it's taken with almost a level of religiosity where if you're at the top of the intersectionality power pyramid, you're an oppressor and therefore bad. One of the reasons that Greg and I first teamed up is because when I was a freshman at NYU, I read The Coddling of the American Mind, and it very much resonated with me in terms of um, the way that it described my generation. And one of the great untruths that they talk about is that life is a battle between good and evil people, which I think we're certainly um, seeing that a lot of young people live uh, with that black and white, good and bad, oppressor, oppressed sort of worldview. And I would even admit myself that when I first read the book, I became aware of that myself a little bit as a conservative student at a school like NYU, where I felt like I was kind of on my own. And I and I, I was guilty to a certain degree of also thinking like, all these crazy woke kids that I'm in class with couldn't possibly have something worth hearing, which was certainly not true in, in a worldview that I was guilty of myself, too. So I think it's it's definitely a pervasive, no matter what side of the political aisle you find yourself on, it's a pervasive kind of mindset that you can fall into even easier if you grew up with social media and algorithms and, and like all of this affirmative information that just piles on top of you for your entire political awakening as a teenager. And so um, I think a lot of that feeds into cancel culture on both the right and the left as well. And it's certainly uh, widespread in my generation, I think, regardless of whatever political side you come down on. Yeah. And and the ideology that, that we talk about um, in both coddling and canceling 
is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic about the idea that DEI administrations can or should be saved. Um, one thing that we point out, and I, I saw this this reaction to some of the laws that were being passed, and FIRE opposed, like, one of the laws that was passed um, uh, in, in, in Florida because it actually unconstitutionally told schools that they couldn't, uh, they couldn't actually, professors couldn't even take certain positions. And it's like, no, no, that's that's unconstitutional. That's that's not an easy call. That's that's a obviously unconstitutional. But there was one law that did that. Um, and it has been since been defeated in court, both by FIRE and the ACLU. But when it comes to um, some of the other laws that were passed to try to eliminate the DEI bureaucracy, we, we had people being like, oh, my God, this is this is this is harming the academic freedom of these schools to have these DEI bureaucracies. And I'm like, you do know that DEI bureaucracies are often a threat to academic freedom and free speech on campus. And that in many of the cases that we're talking about, DEI administrators were involved in, in the shoutdowns in some cases in the cancel campaigns. Um, so I think that that right now there's a lot of sort of hand-wringing about what DEI, uh, what the future of DEA on campus is. And I think there's no way forward without massively debureaucratizing a lot of these universities. I want to talk about DEI, but I want to come back to it in a moment. One of the things that is really striking, and we talked about this a little bit with Rui Teixeira, our colleague who had a book about you know what's happened to the Democratic Party. And again, there's a lot of intersectionality here as well because of the problems that exist on the left. But one of the things that really stayed with me and resonates again in this conversation is that historically, we would see extremist views by the generation that was in university but that they grew out of them, okay? that they did not take them to IBM or Meta or wherever they were working. In fact, they left them behind because they grew up, right? And now what you're describing, Ricky and Greg, is is actually a, a cancel culture that is absorbed with all of its tenets in university. And I don't think it's just elite universities. I don't want to be unfair to the less elite universities because I think this is a much more pervasive problem. And then taken into companies, taken into journalism, taken into every aspect of life and imposed on us. And that's something I don't understand. And I'd really love to hear both your insight on this. This is something that, you know, Height and I saw coming and everybody at FIRE saw coming, was that there was this idea that the real world will beat this out of these kids and, the, and they'll give up these goofy ideas once once they graduate. I think that's true in a situation in which it's a small number of students who have these ideas. Um, and in a situation where, like in, in, in earlier times, that we weren't so in such an unhealthy way reliant for a lot of these elite institutions to hire from. Um, and yet, and to be clear, the relationship between cancel culture and other schools is it's much worse in elite higher education. However, it is really bad in a lot of other non-elite places as well. Um, but it but it is more exaggerated in, say, say, the top 10 schools. And unfortunately, and this is something that I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, maybe it's just my, you know, my own class background. Uh, but it, it, I only really noticed in the late 90s the weird extra premium we give to people who went to Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, etc. And I think maybe uh, it became a very much a big status symbol to, to go to some of the fancies in a way that was, um, I think, exaggerated for a society that once had a certain healthy Bugs Bunny kind of anti-elitism. Uh, anti but once you actually start having entire sectors that are highly dependent on the fancies, students end up showing up with an environment that has been for a while 
people who are in those environments, you know, um, and so they're sympathetic to it already, or at least some of them, enough of them are. And then students show up with these very strong moralistic assumptions that given a lot of these institutions don't have a lot of political diversity to begin with, they have no no natural immune system to and chaos results. I think it's also a matter of just the precedent that was set when this new this new generation of activist young employees who grew up basically refining the tools of cancel culture on Tumblr and then were just kind of cheered on by the administrators in college arrived at these corporations and it just takes one like wacky person on Twitter to catch a corporation flat-footed for them to say, oh, sorry, we didn't mean to offend you, even if they don't really understand. And someone in HR thinks an apology is better on Twitter. And then the precedent is set that just one person complaining on Twitter or or a completely um, unsubstantiated claim of offense is something that will be adjudicated by um, a corporation or that a corporation will apologize for. So I do think that the, it was just this scary new breed of young, confusing and overly online employees that are really hard to deal with. And I, I don't envy um, corporate leaders who weren't anticipating mutinies in their uh, like new hires uh, for for making some missteps and then setting a poor precedent. But I do think that we're seeing a little bit of a shift away from that with, like, for example, in the wake of the um, Dave Chappelle protests at Netflix to see Netflix come out and say, we're going to publish things that you don't like. And if that's a problem, you can leave. I think that's a, a healthy step forward and probably where we will course correct. But one other thing that on the note of the kind of tyranny of the minority here that I do want to underscore is that 100% I'm throwing my generation under the bus constantly in this conversation. However, I would say that Gen Z, and I've, I say this time and again, and I think it's really important, Gen Z, millennials have the most positive view of cancel culture of any generation, and it gets worse and worse as you get older and boomers are the least popular, except for Gen Z hates cancel culture even more than boomers, which is really important because it's just a few squeaky wheels and a bunch of kids that have been navigating tripwires since they were teenagers, but they just don't have a positive, restorative, free speech oriented fix that they've been taught growing up in order to supplant cancel culture. So we're just biting our tongues and sitting on our hands and are terrified of the the activist students or, or co-workers that we, we know and that uh, cause us to self-silence and self-censor. So I wanted to follow up on this, and, and this is becoming a, a podcast about uh, about intersectionality in the sense that all of these problems are actually related to each other. Greg, you said you know you don't remember before the the late nineties this adulation, this strange elevation of elite schools. What it forcibly reminded me of was Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart. Right, because this is really when we see in the in the 90s, I think, the apotheosis of this idea that, in fact, the people who go to Harvard are marrying the people who go to Princeton and their kids are going to Harvard and Princeton and their kids are in turn. And what you have is this filtering out of other perspectives, other classes and so everybody, whether they're black, they're white, they're yellow, they're purple, they're trans, whatever, you know, label society has assigned them, the bottom line is that most of them come from this elite bubble, right? And of course, if we want to get even more intersectional about it, this is where Donald Trump comes from, right? This is the revolt of the anti-Harvards. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, you're totally talking my language on. I think the culture war is largely a class war to, to, to a degree. I think at least an awful, awful lot of it is. And it, one of the weirdest things 
living in San Francisco in the late 90s, particularly being from, you know, until I was probably about nine, we were below the poverty level until my dad started working again. And being being at a place like Stanford was just, you know, very strange in a lot of ways. Um, and then going to parties and realizing I was in the most affluent, overeducated, and, and oftentimes whitest environment that I was used to being in uh, in my life. Yet everyone seemed to think they were down with the people. And I'm like, guys, this is Geneva, Switzerland, which I have also lived. But Geneva, Switzerland is not under the impression that it's down with the people. You're, you're, you're basically the same people. So I think that there, I think that, that we have an unhealthy adulation of these elite schools, and they they do re- recreate their own image, and they literally send their own kids time and time again. So I think there's kind of a reckoning going on about whether or not this is. Uh, I sometimes think we should get rid of legacy admissions just to break the reliance of billionaires on elite higher ed. Like, I actually want to get them off the drug of elite higher ed. And I think one of the ways to do that, because I I see sometimes people on the left advocating for, let's get rid of legacy emissions if we're getting rid of affirmative action. I'm like, sure, that would be fantastic, because this means a lot of these people would be sending their kids to other schools and spreading the wealth a little bit. Well, you, you know, you look at Claudine Gay. She went to one of the schools in Exeter in the country. She's from a family of wealthy Haitian immigrants. She's an elite at that, but because... She's black. Uh, she's uh, on the bottom of the intersectional pyramid, right? Uh, no, she's not. <laughs> not really. But, but let's talk about a little bit about Harvard here, because, you know, you've got Harvard, you uh, at FIRE declared was the, the lowest ranked school for free speech in the entire United States of America. And as soon as uh, they, they the, really earned that, by the way. Yes, I can see that. We're all, it's been, you're, you've been validated by the, uh, by recent events. But as soon as like the anti-Semitic protests start happening on campus, pro-Hamas protesters marching, accosting Jewish students, uh, uh, this, this hostile environment, you know, she goes up to Capitol Hill and basically wraps herself in the mantle of free speech. And academic freedom. It's like, you know, you've been crushing academic freedom for years as an institution. All of a sudden, you're embracing it. How does that work? And how do we handle this problem of anti-Semitism on campuses? For those of us who believe in free speech and acad- and free expression yeah. and oppose cancel culture, but do we also, does that mean we have to tolerate essentially the left-wing version of neo-Nazis marching on campuses? How, how do we bring those things together? Yeah, two different things there. Um, so one of them was, just the idea that um, Harvard scored dead last on our campus free speech ranking. And initially they tried to be dismissive of it, but then, you know, Nate Silver is looking at our data and being really impressed. And a lot of other people are like, wow, okay, this is actually, because it is, it's the largest survey ever conducted of its kind, um, largest polling uh, ever done on this topic on, on whether or not you can speak on your campus and the largest database ever assembled of professor cancellations, student cancellations, deplatforming and speech codes. And Harvard got a negative score that we rounded up to zero. So so the fact that they couldn't convince anybody that they were now great on free speech suddenly um, was completely just desserts on that. When it comes to how to uh, protect students from anti-Semitism, we, we've actually written about this at the fire.org. We have a whole you know guide essentially to, to things that are not okay. And, um, you know, incitement to imminent lawless action is not okay. Hard standard to meet, though. 
Um, but uh, more importantly, threats are not okay, and that includes something like surrounding people, basically something that someone would respond, would reasonably understand that they were in danger of, of bodily harm or death, and discriminatory harassment, which is severe, persistent, and pervasive uh, discriminatory behavior directed towards an individual or group. Like, none, none of these are protected. For that matter, as Bill Ackman pointed out, letting the pro-Palestinian students get away with shouting down classes or disrupting uh, libraries and that kind of stuff, they never had to put up with that in the first place, nor, nor should they. So there's lots of things that schools can do. But if you're talking about, you know, someone shouting offensive things in a protest, they can do that. That is protected. And, and, it, and in my opinion, it very much should be. But, but I want to be clear here. I do think there is an anti-Semitism problem, particularly, and, and that I've noticed, particularly in elite higher ed, and also in schools in California, um, th- that that I found really disturbing. So I don't, uh, I, I do think this is a problem, and and frankly, I'm kind of hoping that an awful lot of students are going to say, you know what, this system is broken. Let's figure out cheaper, lower cost, more rigorous ways of showing who the best and brightest really are. Would a school like Harvard, and Ricky, you're the most recent one to go to a university on this podcast, would a school like Harvard or NYU tolerate neo-Nazis marching on their campus or the student neo-Nazi coalition for Aryan purity? Uh, Would they tolerate students marching and saying that all black people should be driven from the Atlantic to the Pacific into the sea and sent back to Africa? I mean, are the are these things be tolerated on campuses? Where is the line between what's acceptable speech and what's not? And beyond, you know, threatening. I mean, if a neo-Nazi marched in Harvard and wanted to be a professor at Harvard and advocated these things, even if they didn't threaten somebody, even if they didn't push them around, just by saying these things, they would be expelled from polite society. We don't we don't tolerate those people in our personal circles of friendship. How 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 do we tolerate that? On the left, why is it okay on the left, but it's not yeah. okay on the right? Well, the the double the, the first point, I completely agree with you. The double standards are overwhelming, and it's something that, where essentially, and that's why they couldn't claim they're good on free speech. That there there's stuff that would have gotten you in trouble and would have been a fire case if they'd actually you know said some of these other offensive things. But I am going to challenge you a little bit on this. Sure. The thing that has been happening a lot on campus are two things: uh, students shouting in afada and and students saying from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Now I don't like I'm I'm more pro Israel like uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, and they don't um, know but, which river. <laughs> but, well, yeah, and 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 for, but from a free speech standpoint, are yeah. those two statements by themselves protected? Yes, and that's that, that, that's not that's actually not a controversial First Amendment opinion. And what's interesting is when I hear from the river to the sea, I'm like, dude, like you you, you do know that 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 means wiping them off the map. And guess what? An awful lot of students had no clue that that's actually what that meant. So when the Wall Street Journal actually showed students on the map, this is the river, this is the sea, they got a lot less comfortable with with that statement. So you have something where absolutely Jewish students are understandably um, uh, offended by. And in some circumstances, again, it can be threats, it can be discriminatory harassment, it can be incitement. Uh, But oftentimes by students who don't, you know, who don't even understand what they're saying. At Harvard. (laughs) Stupid is not a great defense. I feel like there's just been a lot of confusion about where the heck this issue came up out of nowhere as like the pet issue of Harvard students that don't know anything about it in the first place. But the thing that I mean, my personal belief of why this is catching so much fire on these campuses is because like young people always want to be transgressive and to push the edgy 
progressive cause and to champion and have have posters and to get in trouble or to make administrators uncomfortable. But historically, they, you know, they want to protest Donald Trump's election and then, oh, classes are canceled so you can do that. Or you can have a, a university sanctioned cry session over his election or they want to protest BLM. And then there's a university wide email from the president that um, just puts a stamp of approval on all their views, or they want to protest the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, and their professor agrees with them and does a whole intro to their class that day on on how they're totally right, and they're they want to push the the envelope again and again and again, and yet the university system is so clearly generally one way politically, at least at the administrative level, that the administrators are like, yeah, good job, go you, and now they've finally found an issue that actually does ruffle feathers and rightfully offends people. And I think that this is finally how some of these students feel like they're pushing back against the powers that be. Um, and it's manifesting in a, a really hideous and surprising way from people from the outside looking in. But certainly having seen how how many radical positions at NYU were just like cheered on by administrators, like that's not cool. You're not the cool, edgy political activist if everybody, like the student, the, the university president is writing an email in support of your protest every single time. So I think that that's, that's part of it. As and, well. le- and let's be clear here. A lot of this activism, a lot of this oversimplified way of thinking is taught um, at some of these really elite schools. And even in orientation, it, it is emphasized and encouraged. I think actually you got to give a little bit of credit to Dartmouth University, which is under new leadership, because they're not having a lot of these, these kind of incidents because they did the hard work of starting months ago to ha- have – very public, very open dialogue about Israel-Palestine uh, issues, and that's one of the things that actually, when you get people talking, some of this, some, some of this calms down. And when you don't have administrators being kind of like rewarding you just on the the basis of how radical you are in your heart and your actions, as long as the cause is approved by the the administrators themselves, you can avoid a lot of this stuff. I want to I want to ask you guys about uh, something that we don't talk as much about. So. You know, this, this cancel culture, while it's, I think, most prevalent and most popular on the left, is certainly not unknown on the right. And, you know, one of the worst things that Mark and I have talked about repeatedly is, is this desire not to squash these ideas that your freedoms are limited by people's feelings, by people's sense of personal harm, but this desire to sort of, hey, wait for me. Let me see who I can cancel too on the right among certain people. So can you talk a little bit about what you see and, and also why you see the disparity? Yeah, we have about three chapters in the book on cancel culture from the right. Um, we've been accused by some on the right of engaging in mindless both siderism, and it's like, no, uh, we we have three chapters in a book of you know twenty plus chapters, you know, talking about actual threats from the right, and why do we have that there? Because there are they exist, uh, they they are real. We're not saying they're proportional or, or, or they're as common, certainly not in higher education, but they do happen. So one of the things I point out is that in our data, about one third of the professors getting in trouble, um, they, it actually, it usually starts from a campaign uh, that, that it starts as a campaign on the right. That, it, you know, it's something that someone, a professor said something embarrassing to the university that gets into Fox News. And next thing you know, that that professor loses their job. Now, that's a fire case. We are going to defend professors if they get in trouble and students are in trouble for their speech, period. And in a genuinely nonpartisan way. Now, I do have to add the caveat. The person usually doing the actual firing is is themselves oftentimes on the left. 
But the impulse to get, you know, get these people fired is something that I find troubling no matter, uh, no matter where it comes from. So we talk about some of the legislative efforts. I mentioned one of them before that we thought was foolish and, and, the, so, and we said was unconstitutional. And so far, the courts have found it unconstitutional on the right. Um, and then we talk about, you know, um, some of the behavior that you see sometimes in conservative uh, journalism, uh, for example. And we talk about uh, some of the things we've seen elsewhere. So we, we talk about the three, we have about three chapters on it. And it's important, you know, because it's important to be uh, consistent, but not mindlessly both sided. Ricky, but did you have something to add? On the right, I think we've seen so many people say that they're free speech advocates and, and they believe in free speech when it's their side being attacked. But often I think that there's a kind of frailty to those claims in a society that's generally drifted away from free speech culture in general. And it is convenient and easy when you can defend the speech that you like to defend. And the right often um, has been put in that position by an illiberal left that is very cancel culture gung-ho heavy. Um, But I would say I've been disappointed from time to time by people that I thought were genuine free speech activists on the right who, when it's not speech that's convenient or or appealing to them, uh, shy away from defending it no matter what whatsoever. And I do think especially some younger people who grew up that might have felt alienated by the illiberal left have kind of fallen into some illiberal right circles as a result. Um, and so our final chapter is really about restoring a free speech culture. And so I don't think it's both siderism to say that our entire culture has kind of stepped away from these values. And it's free speech has become almost a political weapon on one side or the other. Um, and it's it's a really sad retreat, in my opinion. And I think particularly because there are so many young people who don't like cancel culture, who don't like illiberalism, but have not been taught the cla- the tenets of classical liberalism and free speech culture that could supplant it. Um, I think I, we really could make a cultural change, but it's a matter of, of civics education. And it's a matter of teaching people nonpartisan free speech values, which by and large, I think we failed to do. So I think you're hitting on something there, and I wanted to explore a little bit more. This intersection between the lack of commitment to the principle of free speech and sort of the rising anti-Americanism on these campuses and among students. There was a uh, a poll recently that came out, that, and if you go back in 2003, I think it was the Wall Street Journal poll, 70% of Americans said they were extremely proud to be an American. And today, two decades later, it's dropped to 39% among young Americans. It's just 18%. And then you look at the NAEP scores that came out just recently. And, you know, we've all a lot of people have focused on the reading and math and the basics uh, of education. The NAEP scores on on history and civics are even worse. Uh, They found that the uh, scores in U.S. history and civics for eighth graders are collapsing across the country. Uh, History scores this year were the lowest ever recorded in three decades since the assessment began. Civic scores dropped for the first time. Only 14% of students are proficient in history, 22% are proficient in civics. So we're not preparing these kids who are going to these universities with basic knowledge about, you know, the, the, the founding principles of our country, the fact that the First Amendment is part of the greatest constitution ever written in human history. And so they don't have a value for it. And also because they don't know history, they're vulnerable to these leftist professors who filled them with this oppressor oppressed culture. And, you know, you just, I just saw like, you know, there's a poll that said a shocking number of young Americans think the Holocaust was exaggerated. So they're, they're both intolerant. We've got a generation that's coming up that is both intolerant and ignorant. How do we fix that? Yeah. I mean, I'll just underscore that by saying that I, I went to 
a great private school growing up. I went to a boarding school. I went to NYU. I did, even though I dropped out of NYU during the pandemic, I did do a two-year accelerated philosophy course. And despite all of that insane educational background that I'm so grateful for, it took dropping out of college during the pandemic and lockdown and deciding that I wanted to read for myself to discover John Stuart Mill and to read on liberty and to have like the light bulb moment of what a free speech culture actually is and what how profound and, and tiny of a sliver of human history I'm, I'm blessed to live in where we don't burn our heretics at the stake and where free speech actually does generally by and large prevail in our society. But it took dropping out of my philosophy degree program to discover that. Um, and ultimately, I, I ran into a professor who I had for that program who taught us John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism in that class. And I said to him, I was like, oh, I read On Liberty when during lockdown, and it like totally changed my life and my worldview. And he had never read it. <laughs> so um, that just goes to You're show kidding. that even if the, like, you can throw all the money in the world at your child's education, and they still are not coming up with a, an adequate civics uh, background. And I, I was a 4.0 GPA student at NYU, and I still had absolutely no understanding. I, I was living in a, a with all the pluses of a, a society with the First Amendment, but absolutely no understanding of why that was philosophically unique and worth fighting for. And it took dropping out of school to figure that out for myself. Yeah, I, I see I see those numbers and they just scare me half to death. Um, because when I was a kid, I'm, I'm a first-generation kid. My, my dad's a um, Russian refugee immigrant and my mom, is, uh, we fled the Bolsheviks. Actually, my grandfather fought the Bolsheviks. My mom is Irish by way of England. And I, I did, when I was little, sometimes you'd read stuff that was kind of like what I would call positive American narcissism in, in the sense that it was like, um, you know, reading the American bomber campaign won World War II. I'd be kind of like, well, no, that's a little more complicated than that. There were a lot of Soviet soldiers as well. But it was awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so there was, I sometimes bristled at the at, at America thinking at the center of the world when, as far as my parents were concerned, it's the new kid on the block. You know, like, like my dad was very serious on teaching me about like 12th century Russian history. Um, but the negative narcissism, like, like the idea that sort of like, it, it, it's foolish that if we think that America is the source of every good thing that came out of the world, but it's even more foolish, frankly, to think that we're the source of all evil in the world. And I ran into a lot more of that, the more elite I, I, I rose in society, like, and it was absolutely, you know, maddening. And, it, and it's one of the things that makes that the problem of solving this so difficult and why we spend a third of the book talking about solutions, but a lot of them are new institutions, entirely new principles for reform, you know, getting your kids out of some of these, uh, uh, some of these programs. I mean, I, I come out, uh, you know, as being um, pro voucher, you know, uh, uh, finally, like, like in, in the book, because like, I, I think we, we, we gotta be thinking big in terms of reform, because a lot of these places, they are so deeply into groupthink, um, they can't even see the, how uh, narrow their point of view actually is. Were you pro voucher before you did started doing this research? Did you come? Is this like a result of your of your work that you've become pro voucher for, for uh, before I started uh, doing like coddling and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I definitely was more of a voucher skeptic. I'd say like, I was probably becoming pro voucher around the time that we started writing canceling and definitely by the end of it, like, yeah, no, I'm just, you know, we, we need, we need shocks to the system. So let's talk about the solutions you do. Uh, th thank you. First of all, a lot of people love to uh, complain about the problems and, and of course they have no idea what they want to do about how to fix it. So 
for my exit question, uh, I would be really grateful to hear from you how we can fix this. These are the critical questions of our time. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to do. <laughs> the fact that we have a chapter on parenting, on K-12 through reform, on how to keep your corporation out of the culture war, um, and a long chapter on what to do about higher ed is not a sign of our optimism about uh, about the situations, about how much needs to be done. And I've even been writing more at my substack, The Eternally Radical Idea, about like even, even going even deeper and going even farther about what we can do. We do think that one of the most important steps is remembering values that that at least people, you know, Generation X is now rising into sort of leadership positions and we're still overshadowed. I'm Generation X that, that we should uh, overshadowed by the um, by the boomers. But I grew up with um, and we all grew up with in a way that Ricky did not basic small D democratic ideas in the form of expressions to each their own. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Walk a mile in a man's shoes before you judge him. Uh, even judge a, don't judge a book by its cover, for goodness sakes. We had um, little ideas in our society that were basically check yourself, man. Like you're not all knowing. You're not right about everything. It, it, it's not your place to just sit, sit in judgment of everybody else. And of course, uh, some of these sayings have fallen out of popularity because it, 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 uh, campuses want to be all of those things currently, at least the worst, worst illiberal aspects of them. So we think that's a good starting point. Uh, Ricky. What else do you think we should emphasize? I mean, could yeah. we give a lot of suggestions? I mean, I feel like we're in a such a indescribable moment of cultural unrest that there is a lot that could be done just because there's so much widespread doubt in institutions um, across the board politically. People are looking for a restorative, positive way forward, I think, um, regardless of their political valence. And I, w I would say a few like very easy, simple things that people who are concerned in leadership positions can do. Certainly um, colleges and universities and, and alumnus who donate to them um, could say, I'm not donating to you unless you have an actual orientation program about free speech and why it's important. I mean, that would have resonated with me as a student and it wouldn't have I wouldn't have required a global pandemic to figure that out for myself. Ultimately, that would be a pretty helpful start. I also think that corporations can start doing the same thing and follow. Um, you know, Coinbase uh, was a pretty great example where they said, just out of nowhere, kind of like we're not going to take a stance on 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 political issues and hot button issues that divide people one way or another. If that's a problem, you can leave. And about one in ten of their employees did, but that that's not the the type of person that you want to have working for you anyway. So that's a pretty perfect uh, way to filter for people that would ultimately create a problem for you um, and who obviously aren't capable of working in a, a diverse workplace with different viewpoints. Um, but I would also say, again, I'm going to circle back to this because there's so many young people that want some sort of solution. And so I think it's incumbent upon educators and parents um, and even even corporations as they're onboarding people to remind them of these old idioms um, and to to give them a way out of um, the only kind of world that they've known where anything that they've ever said could be used against them or weaponized. I think certainly now that we'll start seeing more and more people rise to leadership positions who have had cell phones since they were 10, like me, um, like we all have something stupid that's probably screenshotted somewhere and anyone who says that they don't is lying to you. We all do because we've been overly online since we were literal preteens. And at a certain point, we're going to have to have a ceasefire on that front where everybody can be torn down. Every, everybody's past can be weaponized. The stupid thing that they said when they were 14 can 
ruin their life 10 years later, and that's just not going to be a sustainable thing going forward. So I think um, a generation that grew up with cancel culture and knows they don't like it is uh, where I hold out the most hope that meaningful change could actually kind of take place. I think one of the biggest problems that Ricky's generation has is they didn't grow up with Schoolhouse Rock. (laughs) They didn't grow (laughs) grow up with the American melting pot. And I'm just a bill and I'm only a bill. I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill and the shot fired around the world. I mean, just the basics of, you know, understanding these stories and this culture and what makes this country so great. Um, But I I propose a solution to conclude. Uh, Everybody should go out and get your book. (laughs) <laughs> and read your book because it's got the it's got the problems it's got the solutions and we are just so thrilled that you agreed to join us here on the podcast thank you thanks for having us thank you both this was fascinating and a wonderful book so mark i noticed that you were really taken by greg's conversion to vouchers what do you think I think it's great. I think this is the solution to the problem. Our education system at both the at the grade school level and the higher education level has been taken over by unaccountable elites who are imposing these ideologies on kids, are not educating them, they're not teaching them in the, in the lower grades math and reading and basics that they need to succeed. They're not teaching them proper history. They're not teaching them civics. They're not teaching them uh, the basics of what it means to be a, a citizen in what is and I will say it unashamedly with, with all the narcissism I can, I can muster, the greatest country in the history of the world, because we're the only country in human history that is not built on blood and soil, but on an idea, the idea of human freedom. And anybody can become an American because all you have to do is believe in our creed and come here legally. So, you know, kids are not being raised with these ideas anymore. And so you've got you have this huge fight you know, in the last couple of years with parents rising up and going to school boards and fighting them over what's being taught to their kids. And the reality is that the rich parents can take their kids out of those schools and send them into private school, but poor parents can't. Minority parents can't. And you know what? The answer to this is for parents to take charge of their kids' education and make the schools accountable, make them accountable to parents who want to teach them the right values, who want to make sure that they're learning the right things. And the only way is to take the power away from the elites and give it back to the parents. Take it away from the oppressors and give it to the oppressed, (laughs) the oppressed parents and oppressed kids who are being spoon-fed uh, this gobbledygook. No, I listen, I, you know, all too well that I agree with you. I, I do think that we need to invest very, very seriously in a reversal of the ideas and the trends that have put us in this place. But I, I don't underestimate the job. You know, Greg and Ricky said, you know, they, they have, they have chapters and chapters about empowering parents, about fixing universities. Um, the, the reality is that the backlash against DEI and even the abolition of DEI offices isn't going to be enough because, you know, people, people's minds are corrupted. And this is one of those things that I, I think we have a hard time in a, with in America. And I always talk about this in, in, in regard to foreign policy. Um, but I think that it's true for Americans as well. We say to ourselves, you know, when we talk about a place like Iran, well, if only the government was overthrown, then the Iranian people would come to the fore and they would govern properly and everything would be fixed. And of course, the answer to that is that's not true. When you've had a government in power like the Iranian regime for 42 years, 43, oh my God, 45 years, geez Louise, 45 years, 
they they bend society to their educational norms. And it's not just a question of decapitation. And so for us, I think the same is true. These corrupt ideas have held sway inside American academia from first grade, from kindergarten, from what you see on your Saturday morning cartoons, right? You know, without, without, I'm just a bill, you know, and Schoolhouse Rock. These have held sway for so long that I think there is a generational battle ahead of us to fight it because the people who engage in this, they're not just scumbags who are hoping to get people canceled. They really believe this. But in gay really believes she is an oppressed minority. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And the only way is to disempower them. And also, you know, again, the problem we face, why why is there a lack of respect for free speech? Why why does the left want to cancel people? Because, well, free, where, where does our right to free speech come from? It comes from our Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. And our Constitution, which is why it was made the First Amendment by our founding fathers. Well, our founding fathers only wrote that document, Danny, because they wanted to perpetuate slavery. And this country was was really wasn't founded in 1776. It was founded in 1619. And we are a systemically racist country. And so therefore, you know, all of that is illegitimate. You know, we grew up. And my, and particularly I, in my home, I, I know my mother was a stateless refugee who came here to America. And for all those reasons, and I know Greg talked about his his family background. We revere the Constitution. We revere those rights because this is this is a country that welcomes the refugee, that welcomes the oppressed fleeing tyranny elsewhere. And we're not inculcating the next generation in those values. And so if you don't think that this was a great country to begin with, then what's so great about the Constitution? And if the Constitution isn't so great, well, what's so great about the First Amendment? And all of a sudden anything goes. And then the Marxists come in and teach them that you got to smash it. <laughs> in order to rebuild it in a better, uh, to create the, uto- the Marxist utopia on earth. You know, this is all connected. The lack of respect for free speech is connected with the lack of re- reference for our country and for its founding principles and with the lack of education that this generation is being taught. And so they're coming out entitled, feeling oppressed, feeling like their country isn't so awesome. And the irony is they're living in the greatest country in the history of the world at the greatest moment to be alive in the history of the world when more people are prosperous and free uh, than at any time in human history. You know, I've talked about this before, the Brookings Institution, our colleagues down the street, did a study that showed in 2018 for the first time in the 35,000 year history since man rose from the swamp to the stars or whenever that happened, uh, that that we have more people who are middle class and rich in the world then there are people who are poor or near poverty in the world. That's unbelievable. And that's because of our, our the values that, that this country stands for. And we're not teaching those values. We're not passing them on. Ronald Reagan said that we're all, every generation is one, one generation away from losing its freedom. Um, and one way you lose your freedom is not necessarily by being conquered. It's by not passing on the values uh, to the next generation because they'll just give it up. Um, and I think that's where we're headed right now. And I'm very worried about it. Well, I'm very worried about it, too, but I wanted to end on that more positive note, which is that we are actually still the greatest nation, and and I think that it is your happy warrior attitude that actually is the one that will prevail rather than – I think the, the biggest mistake we can make is adopting the, the hostile, hate-filled, nasty um, – 
vindictive cancel culture of the left on the right. And I see some people doing that uh, and you know who they are, but um, the right way to win is actually to be a happy warrior, to, to believe in things and to teach people that that optimism actually is the thing that's going to, that's going to save us all. And on that note, amen, Danny. Well oh said. my God. And, but in my last moment of cheerfulness before the Iowa caucuses, <laughs> <laughs> take care, everybody. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.